Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Hope you're having a good Saturday. I'm Praying Medic. I am the host of Supernatural Saturday. Uh, for those of you who are new to the broadcast, um, I do a live stream on my Telegram channel on the second Saturday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern. And if you uh, want to join me on the live stream, you're welcome to jump in. And uh, sometimes we do question and answer sessions where I'll go on for an hour, hour and a half and answer questions. Uh, today is not going to be a question and answer session. I actually have a message that I've been promising everyone for a while. We'll get to that in just a minute. Got to do a little bit of housekeeping first. Uh, I want to let everyone know, if you donate to our ministry, uh, Denise is working on the um, the receipts. She compiles all of the donation information in December. Uh, if you make a donation to our ministry, they are, those donations are tax deductible. We tally all of them up at the end of the year. And then in January, uh, she will send out the receipts for the donations for the tax year. If you want to make a tax-deductible donation to our ministry, you can do that through our Give, Send, Go page. Uh, it is givesendgo.com forward slash PM. Uh, as long as we receive your donation and are able to deposit it by December 31st, uh, it'll go on 2023 tax year. If we receive it, on the 31st and can't get it into the bank until uh, January, it'll go on the 2024 tax year. So if you want to receive, you know, a tax to, uh, deduction for donation, make sure we receive it by the uh, last week of uh, December, ideally <laughs> December 26th, 27th, 28th. So Denise has time to get it uh, deposited. All right. Uh, one more announcement. I want to thank all of the moderators in the Telegram channel. And you know who you are. <laughs> I'm not going to name you. If you know who you are, all the mods in, in all the Telegram channels, the Dream channel, the Health and Nutrition channel, the GMRS channel, uh, all the channels that we have, the main channel. I really appreciate all the time and effort you all put in to making those Telegram channels flow smoothly, to booting out the spammers, to um, disciplining the doom porn pushers, <laughs> and especially praying for uh, the people who come into the channel who need uh, prayer. We've seen amazing testimonies. A lot of the testimonies recently have been people who came into the, into the prayer channel, the main channel, asked for prayer and received healing because you know, two or three people prayed for them. So in addition to the moderators, I want to thank everyone in the channels who is helping uh, people who come in. Uh, you know, every time someone leaves a prayer request, there's at least five or six people praying for them, sometimes 10, 11, 12 people praying for them. I could not, I could not do this without you. All of you who are in that main channel, praying for people 24-7, giving them encouragement, giving them some you know, something to hold on to, teaching them about God, teaching them about dreams, how does God you know, speak to us. Um, all of that 
encouragement and instruction is critical to uh, the plan that God has for us. And like I said, I can't do this myself. I, I need help. Um, and I just want to let you know, I, I appreciate everyone who contributes, who's in the channel, praying for people and, and providing advice, even if it's just, you know, a hashtag for, you know, a book or, or a video to help someone. Uh, everything, every little bit counts. Uh, you know, speaking of, I can't do this by myself and I need help. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you all to, to pray about something specific. Someone sent me a dream two days ago and I played a prominent role in the dream. And I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. It's, it's not important for me to tell you what the dream was. I'll tell you what the dream meant. Um, what was suggested in the dream is that America is going to go through a rebirth. Okay. And if you think about rebirth, why would a country need to go through a rebirth? Well, maybe because it dies and is reborn as something new. Maybe. Uh, in the dream, I was, um, I had a role as sort of a caretaker. And there were a bunch of people in the dream who were praying with me for this newly born country to come back from the grave and live. And in the dream, it, there was a suggestion that because of the prayers of the saints, America was reborn and survived and thrived, but it was only because of prayer. So uh, I, I think, and I've been saying this for a while, I think we're going to go through some difficult times in the not too distant future. Uh, I think we have an opportunity to get rid of a lot of corruption in the institutions of our country and start over in a sense. Uh, you know, not a violent revolution, I don't think, not civil war, but I think we're going to go through, I think we're going to go through some difficult times and it is going to be absolutely critical for people to be praying for our country, uh, for our leaders to have God's vision and God's heart and his plan for our country for the next, you know, 100 years, certainly the next you know, five or 10 years, long-term and short-term. We need to be praying for leaders. We need to be praying for our country. We need to be praying that God will reveal his plans for us and that we will have the courage to walk out those plans and bring them to fruition. And again, one of the points in the dream was, yeah, I had a role as sort of a caretaker in this, along with other people. But um, it was it, there was people behind me <laughs> that were praying for this to happen. And it's not going to happen if we're not praying. So, all right, that's going to do it for the announcements. Uh, let's get into the meat of today's message. And today's message uh, is the long-awaited uh, advanced discussion on emotional healing. So, I don't know, last year sometime, I did a Supernatural Saturday where I discussed how the soul is wounded and then kind of a, a walked people through basic uh, instruction for emotional healing. 
and this is going to be advanced emotional healing. So the latest book, uh, Emotional Healing Made Simple. You can get it on Amazon. If you hate Amazon, you can get it on Barnes & Noble's website. Uh, you could probably order it through a Barnes & Noble brick-and-mortar store. But, and, and, you know, you may be lucky, and, and maybe your, your local Barnes & Noble will have it on the shelf. But if not, you can go on the Barnes & Noble website, and you can order it there, uh, both on Nook and in paperback. It's also available uh, as an ebook on Apple Books and, and Kobo and a lot of other ebook retailers. And yes, the audio version will be out soon. Uh, Steve Bremner has the manuscript uh, and he's working on the audio version. So that the audio, audio version, is, it always takes a few weeks longer uh, to come out after the print uh, and ebook comes out. So uh, in this book, Emotional Healing Made Simple, was going to be titled Emotional Healing and Deliverance Made Simple. But Denise said, look, it's too many words <laughs> to fit into the top half of that book. It doesn't flow with our, you know, our, our, our look for the book. So you need to shorten the title. So I said, okay, how about it just emotional healing made simple? She's like, that works. So I, I bring this up because a lot of people have had some success getting victory over um, physical illness and <clears throat> uh, to some degree mental illness through emotional healing. And then they hit this wall where they can't make any further progress or the symptoms that they were healed of come back. Or they get healed of one or two things, but they can't get healed of this third thing or the fourth thing or the fifth thing. And a lot of that is because they're focused on the emotional healing and they're not doing the deliverance. You have to do both. Uh, you know, some people find it really easy to engage the emotional healing process. Some people find it very difficult to engage the emotional healing process. Guys, there, there's just a lot of, it, it's some women, but it's mostly men who, for whatever reason, uh, tend to be more reluctant to engage the emotional healing process. Um, and look, if you suffer from, you know, migraine headaches, erectile dysfunction, chronic neck pain, back pain, you know, you've, you've, your knees are blown out and your doctor says you need to have a knee replacement, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, cirrhosis of the liver, you just name the condition, um, even, even Lyme's disease and a lot of other autoimmune conditions. Uh, many of those are rooted in emotional trauma. And if you've received prayer and you're not healed and you have not tried emotional healing, stop being a stick in the mud. Get your butt in gear and <laughs> embrace the healing process. If you are willing to cooperate with God, if you're willing to let him take you through the healing process, you will be healed. But you have to be willing to embrace the process. Healing is a process. Healing is warfare on the one hand. We're, we're conducting warfare against the kingdom of darkness. But healing is also a process. There are things that you have to go through. There are steps you need to take, uh, you know, agreements you need to renounce, um, altars and fragments that need to be healed, um, you know, demons need to be evicted, 
And when they come back, they need to be evicted again. And when they come back, they need to be <laughs> evicted again and lock the door and get healed of that thing that is letting them come back in. All right. That's it's it is a process and it's warfare. So don't don't get frustrated if you go through emotional healing a couple of times and you're not seeing complete, total, dramatic results. <laughs> Some people do see complete, total, dramatic results. In the book, uh, the new book, Emotional Healing Made Simple, I share a lot of testimonies. I think there's Denise counted them up. There's like 17 or 18 uh, testimonies in the book. Some of them are fairly lengthy and some of them are very dramatic. Sudden, dramatic, overnight, boom. The person's life was a total mess. And the next day, they're completely healed of everything. That does sometimes happen. That doesn't always happen. For most people, it's little by little chipping away at the issues that have taken you your entire lifetime to accumulate. Most people are not going to wipe away all of the trauma, all of the demonic uh, infestation and, and, and issues and, and health issues that develop over an entire lifetime. In addition to emotional healing and deliverance, you might need to break some curses. You might need to renounce some agreements. You might need to change your diet. Um, you might do, need to do a lot of things to, to get rid of some of these issues. Um, so there, it, it's a process. And I'm going to describe in this broadcast um, the, more, the more elaborate and intricate parts of the process. So previously in podcasts and interviews with Elijah Streams uh, the other day, and on the previous Supernatural Saturday, I discussed the basic dynamics of emotional healing. It's not, it's not simple. I mean, <laughs> it is simple. It's not complicated. Uh, basically what, what you try to, what we're doing in that process is, uh, generally, this is not always generally. And in fact, <laughs> everything I say about this process is generally, it's not an always. Uh, and, if you quote me something I say on a on a broadcast, please try to keep it in context and please try not to misquote me and take things out of context. Some people don't hear correctly the things that I say and they take them out of context and misquote me and misunderstand what I'm saying. So uh, just, you know, a heads up. If you're going to learn about the process and teach other people, learn the process well. And if you have questions, comments, whatever, need clarification, hit me up on my website, prayingmedic.com or prayingmedic.org. There's a contact page there. Just email me and I can give you confirmation, clarification, and further information if you need it. All right. So the emotional healing process, basic emotional healing, it, what we're trying to do generally is uh, we're trying to trigger an altar or a fragment to come up. Now, if you don't know what an altar or a fragment is, I'll explain. But this is the advanced emotional healing uh, message. So I've covered how altars and fragments are created, what they are. That's all of that information is in my last message, two or three messages, actually, on altars and fragments. There's a podcast on Podbean. 
called, it's about healing altars and fragments. Uh, in that previous discussion on emotional healing, I discussed altars and fragments about there. Essentially, um, an, a, a fragment, think of the word fragment. What is a fragment? It's a part of something, right? If I rip off, if I rip off a piece of paper from this little sticky note, there's a fragment. I have a fragment of paper, right? A fragment is a part. And a fragment in the context of emotional healing is a part of your soul that has been wounded. That's, that's what a fragment is. Fragment is a wounded part of your soul. When your soul experiences emotional trauma, part of, that part of your soul is wounded. It is walled off from the rest of your soul to prevent that trauma from infecting the rest of your soul and making you an angry, bitter person for the rest of your life. It's a, it is a divinely given mechanism that limits the damage. It contains the damage of emotional trauma. The emotional trauma is limited and swallowed off into that fragment. The fragment holds on to the memories and the emotions of trauma. Because a fragment is a part of the soul, and the soul is a seat of our mind, will, and emotions, and personality, um, fragments can develop their own personalities. And when a fragment develops a personality, it's not going to be the same personality that you have. It's going to have its own personality, views, political views, religious views, uh, views of itself, views of you, views of other fragments. It's going to have its own experiences, its own memories, and typically a fragment is uh, a fragment holds onto the memories and emotions of a single traumatic event, usually. A, uh, an altar is a fragment that is the grown and developed its own personality, and that personality is going to be based on the traumatic event that caused it, generally. And fragments can learn and can be trained, and they can be programmed, and that is what we're going to talk about next. So, um, let's see. Maybe I should talk about something else first. <laughs> All right. The, it's, it's tempting to think that this discussion is exclusively um, pertinent to the domain of people who have multiple personality disorders. Someone's been diagnosed with DID, dissociative identity disorder. That, that's typically where this conversation goes. This is like, People listening to this will say, oh, 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 you're talking about people with multiple personalities. Well, yes, uh, but here's the reality. Multiple personality disorder used to be uh, the, the diagnosis of someone who had multiple personalities. The newer diagnosis, the new name for it is disso dissociative identity disorder, DID. Um, that diagnosis is made by a licensed healthcare professional, right? I'm not a licensed healthcare professional. I can't diagnose someone with DID. I don't really get into the, the diagnostic end of this discussion. It's not my, it's not my thing, not my calling. What I can say is most people have alternate personalities. 
I, I, I have not met anyone who doesn't have alternate personalities. Just say that. Of all the people I know right now, I don't know one person who has not had alternate personalities, including myself. Uh, I have had a number of alters, and through the process, I've gotten them healed and integrated. Um, and, and God will um, reveal those alters and fragments to you in a number of ways. And, and, you know, the typical way that you understand that you start to suspect, oh, maybe I do have <laughs> a little Jekyll and Hyde thing going on, is you have the Jekyll and Hyde thing going on. Um, people who are, you know, and as an example, people who are normally kind of laid back, easygoing, don't get stressed out. Um, when they are confronted with a situation, with a person, with an event, and they suddenly kind of switch and they become angry and irrational, um, explosive personality all of a sudden, and they do and say things that are very much out of character for them, that is a clue that that person has an alternate personality that, <clears throat> that sometimes takes over for them, handles the situation, and then that little altar goes back down and be, is quiet, and the normal, happy-go-lucky, easygoing personality takes over control. And many times, um, that person will, it, you know, it's probably about 50-50. Sometimes the, the individual will not actually remember what they said and did. They'll have a little bit of amnesia about what happened there. They're like, you know, wow, I just kind of blanking on what just happened here. Like they just don't have good recall of what was said and done. That's a, it's probably 30 or 40% of the, of the population. A larger percent of people will be fully aware of what they're saying and what they're doing, and they'll have a recall of it later. But when they look back at that event in hindsight, they'll go, wow, why did I act that way? That's like out of character for me. I don't normally do that. Like what triggered me to do that? If, uh, and, and that's, that's just one example. There are other examples. I had a woman emailed me yesterday. And she said, you know, um, growing up, I didn't have an abusive uh, family. My father didn't hit me. My mother wasn't verbally abusive to me. But they never showed me love. They just didn't engage me in any love. I never felt loved. I never felt cared for. My parents were very indifferent to me. And she said, you know, I, when I think about emotional trauma, I think of someone who's been verbally abused, physically abused, tortured, things of that nature. And this woman didn't feel like she had been abused, but she definitely knew she was neglected. And I wrote to her and I said, look, neglect is just as damaging to the soul as abuse. Uh, because what causes emotional trauma is a lack of love. That's what God told me in a dream, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe nine years ago. I asked God, what is, what is the key to healing emotional trauma? And he said, it's love. And I took from that revelation that if love is what heals emotional trauma, then it is a lack of love that causes it, right? <laughs> what causes people's soul, their heart, to be wounded and broken? It's a lack of love, right? So speaking of brokenhearted, uh, Isaiah 61. Prophecy of the Messiah, 
Surely he has come to heal the brokenhearted. That's the scripture that Jesus quoted when he went into the temple and read from the scroll of Isaiah. And he's, you know, he said, in this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And, and one of the very, in verse one, it says about the Messiah that he would come to heal the brokenhearted. That Hebrew word brokenhearted is the word shabar, which means to be shattered into pieces. The, the soul can be shattered or broken into pieces. And that's what we're talking about with altars and fragments. And the Messiah, Jesus, has come to heal our broken heart. Our heart gets broken when we are not shown love. So some people uh, experience trauma through neglect, some through abuse, overt abuse. Some people just um, have altars and fragments develop uh, in, in, in a variety of ways. Um, and the, the type of events that cause us to be <clears throat> traumatized can be pretty surprising. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, being raped, watching someone being murdered, the death of your, you know, of a spouse, the, the death of, of a parent when you're young. It can be little things like being bullied at school. In fact, if you go back in your memory to when you were in elementary school or middle school, if you can think of a time when a relative friend, neighbor, <clears throat> or someone, a classmate, bullied you, intimidated you, threatened you, harassed you, you will likely latch on to an event, at least one, where your soul was traumatized and you have an altar or fragment that needs to be healed from that event. And some of you have many events like that. So the cause of emotional trauma can be something very, very slight, very minor. The death of a pet can be tra traumatic to a young person. All right, so there's many different types of um, events that can cause trauma. We're gonna shift segue to um, severe trauma. All right, so uh, <laughs> how do I do this tactfully? Let's see, switching topics without a segue. Um, there, when you do not have memories from your childhood, there is a very good chance that you had a traumatic childhood. And the conundrum there is, I, <laughs> I get this all the time in emails. I can't remember much or any of my childhood, but I don't think I was abused. Okay, so you don't remember being abused, but you don't think you were abused, and you're pretty sure you weren't because you have no memory of it. And that's, it's like the dog chasing its tail. It's a circular question. How do you know if you suffered trauma during your childhood if you can't remember your childhood? Then you can go on to witnesses. So my brother, my sister, what do they say? My parents, what do they say? My best friend, what did that, does that person say? Do they remember something happening to me when I was a kid? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Maybe they're not gonna tell you. Maybe they will. If you wanna go down this road to finding out if you experienced trauma 
when you were young. Put your little Sherlock Holmes hat on and do some um, investigation. Talk to your siblings, talk to your parents if they're able to talk about it. Talk to you know, people in your church, if you grew up in church. Talk to friends, classmates. Get their perspective on what happened during your childhood because the other people almost always have a different perspective on your life than the perspective you have on your life. And um, I will just tell you, there are a lot of people out there who have suffered ritual abuse and have no memory of it and have no way of knowing that it actually happened to them until they go into the healing process and all these altars and fragments start popping up. And then you find multiple altars that are in a system. All right, so we're gonna talk about that next. Uh, with ritual abuse. Uh, ritual abuse happens in many different groups of people. And it happens on a spectrum. Um, in the same way that dissociation happens on a spectrum. So what is dissociation? Dissociation is the temporary feeling as if you are um, disconnected from reality. And here's what that looks like. On, on the, it's a spectrum. So on the one end of the spectrum, if you remember back in school, looking out the window because your teacher is boring you to death. And you're looking out the window and you're daydreaming. And you're thinking about what you're gonna do. <laughs> and I had a woman email me and she said, I used to daydream all the time. In fact, I built this fantasy world in my mind because my life was so boring and so unfulfilling that I literally, I would daydream and build this fantasy world. That's dissociation. When your mind wanders into another reality, when your mind is in uh, contemplating, thinking about other things, and, and, and particularly if you're in another world, if you're in the world of what's gonna happen after school, what's gonna happen tomorrow, what's gonna happen when I get married, what's gonna happen in this little castle, in this world that I build in my mind, it's dissociation. That's a mild form of dissociation. It is not a form of dissociative identity disorder, okay? I'm not saying you have DID if you daydream. We all daydream. It's not, it's not dissociative identity disorder. It is the far end of the spectrum where you momentarily for a few minutes kind of lose touch with reality, what's going on around you. Uh, moving the spectrum over. Some people uh, have altars and fragments in their soul that will come up momentarily and take over control of them. And you know what, oh, hang on. <laughs> I'm gonna give you another mild form of dissociation. You are driving your car to a hardware store, a grocery store, someplace you go all the time. It takes you five minutes to get there. You drive there and as you're getting out of the car, you don't even really remember what happened on the way there. Like how many stoplights did you go through? Um, was there any traffic crossing? What? You just sort of like, what the heck happened? I was on autopilot and I don't actually remember like all the details when I drove here. That is a mild form of dissociation. You kind of just put yourself on autopilot and your mind goes somewhere else. You're thinking about the football game, what the pastor said during his last sermon, 
this podcast I listened to is really amazing. And I'm just running through the podcast in your mind and you're not paying attention to what's going on on the road. Like you just autopilot. Oh, it's a red light. I'll stop. Go. You get to your destination and you just don't remember like actually driving there. Mild form of dissociation. We all do it. Dissociation is not weird. It's normal. And it has extremes. So let's go to a, a little more extreme form of dissociation. Some people have altars and fragments, wounded parts of their soul, that will come up and sort of take over control of the mind, will, and emotions in the body momentarily uh, for many reasons. And some people will actually have these um, periods where they will lose track their core of their personality will lose track of what's going on around them right so uh you are going to a party and you have you have a history i'm just making this up you have a history a past history of having um, embarrassing things happen to you at the company party, the Christmas party, the birthday party. And because you have had events in your past where embarrassing, uh, shameful, disappointing things happened at get-togethers and parties, um, you formed a couple of altars and fragments that will sometimes come up and take over your, your personality when you're going to a party. So you go to this party and you're acting a little bit out of character, like not how you normally act. <laughs> you're interacting with people in a way that when people who know you say, well, you're kind of, boy, what's with you tonight? You're not really yourself. And you're like, oh, you know, I just don't really like these, these kind of events. Again, you might be a normal, normally be a happy, outgoing, gregarious, um, social person. But if these, if this type of event, if these parties have caused you emotional trauma in the past, you may have developed an altar or fragment that comes up, takes over momentarily while you're at the party. When you go home, that personality goes down. Your core personality comes back up again and everything's fine. And you talk to people the next day at work about the party and they remember things slightly differently than you remember them. And they ask you why you said certain things. And you're like, I don't even remember saying that, or I don't think I was acting that way. Another kind of a mild form of dissociation, although it's, we're moving in the, in the direction of dissociative identity disorder. So, uh, when, you display behavior that is out of character, not typical for you. There's a possibility that that behavior is being driven by an altar or a fragment, usually an altar, but fragments come up too. Um, so that's how you might know if you have significant altars and fragments that need to be healed. Now, I have a friend um, I've known her for many years. She was subjected to ritual abuse 
in a religious cult when she was a child. And um, she went through a long period of emotional healing uh, facilitated by Steve Harmon. And when I first met her in person, her altars were switching like crazy. And it was, it was very interesting to go to dinner with her because I'd sit at, Denise and I sat at a table with her and you could, she, um, the expressions on her face would change about every three or four minutes. Different expression on her face. Sometimes her face would be flushed and her eyes would be just a lot of anger. And then like that, a minute later, she was calm and looking around and everything was fine. And she smiled at us and everything seemed to be cool. Two minutes later, boom, she'd switch again. Another personality would come up and she would start fidgeting with things in her purse and looking at her phone for a few minutes. And then like that, she'd switch again. And then she'd be back to be looking around and talking to us and asking us, you know, about the menu. With some people, you can see their personalities switching uh, very quickly. And it's very obvious that they're switching. They're having one altar come up, take over for a while, go back down. Another altar will come up, take over for a while, go back down. Um, again, we're moving in the spectrum toward dissociative identity disorder. When, when you see someone <clears throat> whose, their personalities are, are, are pretty obvious and the switching is pretty obvious and they're, you, you note drastic differences in their speech, preferences, their attitudes, their mood, um, all of those things, that is a definite sign that the person has some alters that are switching and going on. Again, another person who would benefit from emotional healing and integration. All right, so this friend of mine, she suffered, um, she suffered ritual abuse in a, in a religious cult. And, you know, when we talk about religious cults, we're talking about like high level Freemasonry, um, Illuminati and, and other, uh, temple of set. There's other, other, um, there's, there's a variety of, uh, religious cults that practice, um, and, and induce trauma-based mind control on people. Um, it happens in small groups, small groups of cult groups, as well as large ones. Um, there are, you'd be surprised at how many small religious groups are using a form of trauma-based mind control on their members and their members have no idea what's going on. It, it happens more often than people realize. So, uh, in the book, Emotional Healing, made simple. Um, I, in doing research for this book, um, I did a lot, I did a lot of reading and studying and re reading a lot of articles um, from the psychiatric community and, and from the spiritual community. And I ran into the writings of this woman named Svali. It's not her real name. She writes under the, a pen name, Svali, S-V-A-L-I. She was originally, um, she was a she was a mind control programmer in the Illuminati. She was born into the Illuminati. And by the way, anyone who is in the Illuminati, the actual Illuminati cult, uh, was born into that cult. You cannot join the Illuminati as a as a 19 year old or 25 year old. They they do not recruit people from outside of their own 
uh, families. Everyone who is in the Illuminati was born in the Illuminati. They only uh, focus their activities on members who were born into the cult. It's a generational cult. So uh, Smalley was born in, like everybody is, and she was trained to do mind control programming on other members of the cult. She was very good at it, and she rose to become one of the top-level programmers. And she, in her own words, carried on the work of Dr. Joseph Mengele. Mengele was a Nazi scientist who pioneered a lot of the mind control techniques that the CIA would eventually um, weaponize in the 1950s and 60s. Mengele and other Nazi scientists came from Germany over to North America. And in Canada and the U.S., they institutionalized a lot of the mind control techniques under programs like MKUltra. Well, Svali, according to her own testimony, she carried on that work for the Illuminati. She developed mind control techniques. And a lot of it involves torture, um, the use of shock therapy, hypnosis, the use of drugs, uh, abandonment, abuse, betrayal, you name it. Um, it is a, it's a, it's a very, um, <laughs> it's a very dark uh, practice. And um, Svali did this for many years. She got out of the cult in 1995 and has been writing about um, her experiences. She has three books out. And um, if you, if you're interested, you can go on uh any, usually I just got them on. I actually bought all, all three of her books um, on Amazon. Takes, you have to do a little searching because they're not really super popular books. But uh, she she's written books on the subject. She's written lots of articles on a couple of different websites. So I, I emailed her. Uh, I, how did I email somebody who's anonymous? She is a contributor on a website. It, it's a wiki, not Wikipedia. It's a it's a wiki website for trauma-based mind control survivors. And she and a friend are the admins on this website. And a friend, I, I emailed her through the website. Her friend said, you can email her at this email address. And I emailed her and she said, yeah, you can. I asked her if I could use her, some of her information in the book. She said, yes, so I did. Um, there's about four or five chapters in the book that are based on Svale's experiences with trauma-based mind control. She explains in somewhat, uh, I don't want to say gruesome detail, but in graphic detail. I try in the book to limit the gruesome uh, descriptions of torture. Uh, Denise <laughs> helped me clean up. Even, even what I had written, she was like, you know, we need to change this and kind of soften that a little bit because some of the techniques that she describes are, are pretty horrific. So in the book, um, I explain how, how Svali lays out the different types of mind control that they do to, to their members of the cult. And um, I'm just gonna walk you through some of those uh, processes, just for your information, because some of you who are listening to this are eventually going to run into someone who is a victim and 
you may be able to help them if you know how this whole thing works. So <clears throat> um, members of these cults, their programming starts very young. Uh, when they're literally, they start testing them when they're newborns. As soon as they're born, the, the programmers that, or trainers, as they call themselves, will start testing a newborn baby to see how its reflexes are, to see how it reacts to pain and torture and abuse. And they start this at with newborns. And as a toddler, this newborn, the babies are subjected to periods of uh, complete isolation, starvation. They will deprive them of water. They will then do things like, and this is kind of a common tactic that they use. They will lock the child in a room for 24 hours with no food and water. Parent will, parent will come into the room, show them some food, show them a glass of water, eat some of the food, drink some of the water. When the child asks for some food and water, they'll be beaten severely for asking. That's a kind of, um, that's a kind of uh, tra trauma that they induce. And what they're doing with this, and, and they will you know, apply electric shock, like I said, they will hit them, punch them, beat them. The, the, and that's, at, that's for toddlers. It gets worse as they get older. Uh, when, when children are five, six, seven years old, they learn to start using guns and sh uh, how to shoot initially target shooting. And then they end up actually um, shooting humans um, who are deemed to be expendable. Um, so the, the programming that, that these cult members go through, it's extensive. And all of the trauma that is induced is designed to create alters and fragments because alters and fragments can be programmed to do certain things. And the cult needs the individual to function in a multitude of roles within the family, as they call it. So uh, young women will be sexually traumatized and that will create alters and they'll then program those alters to become sex slaves. You get it? They will train young boys to become hunters. They will eventually they'll they start out target shooting and then go to more realistic looking targets. And eventually you're shooting real human beings and they're training them to become assassins. They, they induce trauma. If you refuse to do something they tell you to do, they beat you. They, they, they traumatize you severely, and then they tell you to do it again. And if you refuse, they beat you again. And they'll tell you to do it one more time. And if you refuse, they beat you again until you finally say, yes, I'll do it. When you do it, when you kill the animal, when you kill the human being that they tell you to kill, they're, they're breaking down your defenses and they're creating a compliant victim who will carry out orders without question. That's what all this trauma-based mind control is. It's, it's, they don't just do it for fun. And Svali explains this, <clears throat> and this is, this is going to be hard for some of you to accept, but I'm going to say it. Um, from the outside of the cult, looking inside, you just see a bunch of sadistic, evil people 
who seem to, you know, get their jollies out of hurting each other and, and, and torturing other people. That's actually not what it's about. That's what it looks like about, but that's not what it's about. Somali explained this th this way. She said, my job as a programmer, as a trainer, is to find the most efficient way to program an individual to complete certain tasks and to induce the programming so that it would stay there permanently and it would not be erased or undone. She, her goal was not to come up with the most painful means of torture and they don't torture people for fun. Everything that they do is, has the goal of creating a compliant uh, member of the cult who will do what they're told to do. That's, it's programming and it's all about control. They want to control you so they can get you to do things they need you to do. It's really about control. It's not just torturing people for fun. It is, it's a serious business and they need people to do certain things. That's what the mind control program is all about. They, they create altars and they create fragments and they create systems of altars and fragments. So let's talk about systems. Um, <clears throat> in, in the mind control programming world, um, a system is a group of altars or fragments that are created and programmed to complete a common task. All right. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that the cult insists on is loyalty. They want their members to be loyal to the death. You cannot ever talk about what you witnessed inside the cult at their ceremonies. If you talk to anyone outside the cult about what you see and what you do, what you witness during the ceremonies, they put in a system of altars inside of you. And those altars are programmed to commit suicide, suicide programming. They will torment the, uh, your soul, create altars and fragments, and then program the altars and fragments with directives that if you ever tell anyone outside the cult, that altar is going to supposed to come up on command and commit suicide. There's a system, they'll create a system that is responsible for that function, for making sure you never tell anyone outside what's going on. So what they do is they create all of these different systems within your soul using hundreds of altars and fragments that are programmed over many, many years to accomplish certain tasks, whether it's assassination, whether it is, uh, you know, becoming a sex slave. Uh, they, they have many, many, many uh, tasks that they need people to do. And so they create these systems um, and I'll just give you a little bit of, you know, background information. So um, the main personality that you are born with is called your core in this um, field. Your core or the original core, it has a lot of different names, but I'm just going to call it the core. The core is the essential person that you are born as when the egg 
the sperm get together, fertilize, and a human being is created. That, that original personality is the core of your personality. By inducing trauma, they can then split that core and create another personality, another, an alter that is similar to the core, but slightly different. And they can then program that alter. And how do they do that? I'll get to that in a minute. But that alter is called a core split. It's a, it's an alter that's split from the original core. If you took that alter, you could create a new system by taking that alter and creating more splits. So you split that alter through trauma and that creates another alter and you split that one that creates another alter and split that one creates another alter. And then pretty soon you have a group of alters and it's a system. They usually use a core split to create a new system and that system will then have a purpose that's determined by the trainer. Whatever the person's destiny is going to be within the cult, they will then uh, create as many alters and they'll program them in whatever way they need. So what am I, what, what do I mean when I say programming and alter? And here's what that looks like. One of the kinds of programming that they use is called color programming because uh, people can recognize colors before they can read. Children, very young children, toddlers can recognize colors. So when the member is really young, they will start color programming them. And color programming is really just a way to create systems of alters that can be called up at different times when they're needed. And you can call them up by the color that they're assigned to. And how do they do that? So uh, if they're gonna create, let's say they're gonna create a blue system. And that blue system is going to be designated to do cer a certain set of tasks. You can fill in the blank with whatever task you want. Uh, maybe this system is going to be involved in in espionage. They got a they got a system of blue altars, and those altars are going to be trained to do espionage uh, because their their role eventually is to become a member of the intelligence community. <clears throat> and then uh, do things that the Illuminati needs them to do that revolve around espionage, surveillance, spying, uh, you know, potentially bomb making, potentially, you know, whatever, espionage. So that blue um, system, here's how it's created. You take the core personality, you induce trauma, and you create a, an, uh, a core split alter. That altar is then split again and creates another altar and you create five, five or six to seven altars, however many you need for your, um, for your task. Then, um, when those altars are created, they're programmed. So you call as the trainer, you, when you create that new altar, you call that altar to come up and take over control of the body and the core personality goes down, relinquishes control, that altar comes up. You then start uh, inducing your programming into that newly created altar. What they'll do is they'll put that person in a room that has all blue lighting inside. It might be a white wall that blue lights 
blue light bulbs in all the, in, in all the light fixtures. You'll be dressed in blue. The trainer will be dressed in blue. There will be blue all around the room. Everything in the room will be blue. And the trainer will then start telling you about how awesome the color blue is and how valuable blue is to the, to the family and how you can become blue. <clears throat> and then they didn't describe what the light, what life is like when you are a blue. Um, and blue is not just a color. It is a lifestyle. They explain in great detail the advantages and the special uh, ceremonies you're going to attend and the, um, the respect you're going to get from the community if you become a blue. And then they ask you, would you like to become a blue? And if, and the altar is up uh, in control of the person. Trainer asks the person, the altar, would you like to become a blue? And if they say no, they're tortured. And then they're asked the question again, would you like to become a blue? And if they say no, they're beaten and tortured until they say yes. When they say yes, then they're rewarded. They're hugged, they're adored. People come in and, and, and show them love and, and affection. <clears throat> the whole game with trauma-based mind control programming, it's all based on reward and punishment. If you, if you answer the right way, behave the way they want you to, you're rewarded. If you're not, if you say no, if you do not agree to do what they want to do, you're punished. And it's all reward and punishment. So once you agree, once the altar agrees to become a blue, whatever that is, they're then taught what it means to be a blue. And they meet other altars that are also blues. And the blues hang out together and they party and they learn about what it, what the blue thing is all about. And then eventually, those altars are programmed to accomplish the tasks that the cult needs them to accomplish. And color programming, like I said, is done at a young age, three or four or five years old. So the, these young kids don't really know what's going on in the world, what is going to happen to them six, seven, eight years down the road, but they're gonna be trained to become assassins, to do espionage, to whatever they need, whatever the cult needs them to do. So color programming is just an example of how they will create a system of alters. They'll label that system. And for people who are in, in the cult, they, they can have many different systems. The same concept is used for in what's called metals programming, where they will assign different metals, gold, silver, uh, copper, or bronze, platinum, and what will happen is you start out, and it, this is a hierarchy programming. So color programming doesn't really have a hierarchy. All the colors are more or less equal in stature. But with jewel programming and metals programming, there's a hierarchy. So with jewels, uh, diamond is at the top, and then there's emerald, sapphire, uh, garnet, ruby are at the bottom. With metals, platinum, gold are at the top, silver is lower copper, bronze, lower than that. There's a hierarchy. And they use the same kind of technique that they use with blue programming, but they ask you if you'd like to become a metal or a jewel, depending on the type of programming you use. So they'll show you the jewel. 
They'll show you a ruby or a garnet, say, oh, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it sparkly? Isn't it all, you know, just gorgeous? Wouldn't you like to become a ruby? Wouldn't you like to become a bronze? And they tell you about all the virtues of being a bronze or being a ruby or a garnet or whatever the metal or jewel is that they're trying to program you toward. Eventually, they're going to say, would you like to become a metal, this metal or this uh, stone? And if you say no, you get beaten and tortured. And if you say yes, and they say, oh, awesome. And then they lavish you with praise and hugs and affirmation, right? Again, rewards and punishment. If you agree, you're rewarded. If you don't agree, you're punished. So then they create um, a hierarchy. And, and as you go through your teen years, um, they, they, there's a 12-step system in the Illuminati that Svali describes, and I, I have it in the book, about how they systematically program you to kind of, oh gosh, it's to, um, it's a, it's a, it's a one step, two step, three step, four step. It's a progressive learning and programming to not trust people, to learn how to betray others, to not want to care about others. Um, they have a very insidious way of programming people. And as you make your way up from the step one to step two to step three to step four to step five, you, as you graduate these steps, you will also graduate in either the jewel programming or the metal programming as you accomplish certain things that they need you to do as you're brave and heroic or willing to, you know, be a sex slave and do all the things they need you to do. You graduate one level after another level after another level, and it's all based on reward and punishment. So I said all of that just to give you some idea about the kind of programming that is done on survivors of you know, trauma-based mind control. And that's why they call it trauma-based mind control. That's what I'd like to call it because it's mind control and it uses trauma to induce mind control, compliance. It's, it's all about control. They want you to comply. And if you take that principle and apply it to um, certain people in society, certain people in government, you might notice that it seems like their main goal is to get people to comply with their wishes. Why is it that powerful people want us to comply with their wishes? I'm not going to answer that, but you could probably answer it yourself. So uh, now that we've had this discussion about how trauma-based mind control is induced and why, this next question is, how do we get these people healed and set free? All right. So the first thing that you need to do in the healing process is you need to gain the trust of a couple of these altars that are living inside of this person in their soul. You have to get your foot in the door, right? So that, uh, <laughs> that can require some time and exploration. And basically what you're going to do is uh, if you have someone who was willing to, to go through the healing process, the first thing you need to do is you need to make contact with an altar who may be interested in going through the healing process. 
So what does that look like? Um, it looks like sitting down with them and having a conversation. And you can do it over Zoom, you can do it over a phone call, you can do it text messaging if you want. Uh, however you can contact that person. You need to um, first demonstrate to that individual that you care about them. That person needs to know that you have their best interest at heart and you're not uh, going to harm them. They need to know that you're on their side. And that can take some time. Uh, if you already know someone who trusts you to some degree, you've got a good start. If this is a person you, you don't know very well, you're gonna need to build a, uh, a bridge of trust. And that means doing things with them or for them that give them reasons to trust you because trust is huge in this dynamic. They need to trust you. The, the, the basic um, game plan is they're gonna try to gain trust with more and more alters within their systems. And as their alters trust you, you're then going to uh, try to introduce them to Jesus so that he can heal them. That's the basic plan. So what does that look like in, in actual practice? All right. Uh, again, you're going to have a conversation with the person. And uh, if they know that they have altars, you might just ask one of the altars to come up. And you're going to just start having, you're going to have to ask them questions uh, about the, the altar. And the, and the best way to start this conversation, if you get an altar to come up, you're just going to have a normal conversation with them. Hey, what's your name? Uh, what do you do for this person? So let me explain what I mean by that. Altars, some of them, I would say most of them, most altars are aware that they are not the main person in control. They, they understand who the core personality is, most of them. And so if the altar has a name, Nancy, and the core personality's name is Carol. You, when the altar Nancy, you'd ask this, this altar, oh, hey, uh, how are things going? Uh, do, do you have a name? And don't assume that altars have names because some of them don't. And it's okay to give them a name if you want one. So, fragments and altars, some of them have names. Some of them have really clearly defined identities. Some of them do not. So if they don't have a name, ask them what they would like to be called. Ask them if they want a name. If they want a name, you can say, hey, can I give you a name? They might say yes. Ask them then what that altar, ask them what they do for Carol, the main core of the personality. What do you do for Carol? What is your job? What is your role? How do you make her life better? How do you make her life rock and roll? Uh, do you protect her? Do you uh, take care of her kids? Do you do the homework when she's in college? What do you do for that person? You're trying to build a little bit of trust here. You're trying to get to know this altar. And the altar needs to know, like I said, that they can trust you. So you're going to get to know this altar a little bit. And you're trying to build a bridge of relationship, having conversation. How do you feel life is going right now? What is your perspective on the things that Carol is going through? <clears throat> what things make you angry? What things make you sad? Is there anything that gives you hope? 
what do you, do you think that she's ultimately going to be okay? Do you think she's going to survive all this crap? Um, right. So you're just having a, like a normal conversation like you would have with anyone, except you're, you're driving at a certain uh, point. You eventually want to get to a point where you're, you're trying to elicit their feelings about their situation because you're going to want to change their situation. Okay. Um, these altars uh, and fragments, many of them are in a very difficult spot. <laughs> they, many of them feel defeated. Many of them feel like there really isn't a lot of hope. Some of them are suicidal. By the way, if you are uh, in the healing dynamic, if the individual, whether it's the core personality is up or an altar is up, and they start demonstrating um, suicidal thoughts and suicidal, and especially if they are making suicidal gestures, <clears throat> get them uh, to an emergency department or get them to a mental health facility right away. You do not want to mess around with someone who is actively entertaining thoughts of suicide, and especially if they're uh, making suicidal gestures. That's a dangerous situation. They need professional help. If they're not actively demonstrating or discussing suicide, it's safe to continue. So <clears throat> you're going to uh, be trying to get to a point where you can ask them, would you like Jesus to take away your pain? Because most of the altars at some point um, are going to be experiencing some kind of pain and suffering. And suicidal altars um, are suicidal because they just want the pain to end. They're tired of it. They've been living with it, you know, as long as they've been around. They just want the pain to end. And they think that suicide is the answer. So you're going to try to gain the trust of an altar, whatever altar is up. Converse with them. Ask them how they feel. Is there anything that gives them hope? Is there anything that takes that doesn't give them hope? Do they feel like that? Do they feel defeated? Do they feel like they're not going to win? Do they feel like um, their work is never ending? And, and what, you're, what you then want to do if they say yes, they say, you know, there's this, there's this guy named Jesus. He's never been defeated. Uh, he is the ultimate protector. He can do your job better than you and 10,000 people can do your job. You're going to try to sell them on the idea that Jesus can take care of Carol or Ken, whatever the, whatever the core personality is, right? You refer to them as their personality and then the main personality as whatever their name is. Um, Jesus can take care of the core personality better than you can. Uh, he is a much better, uh, more competent, more equipped, more successful um, caretaker. So if you can get that altar to agree to meet Jesus, you're going to make the introduction. You're going to introduce them to Jesus. And when you do, Jesus is going to take over. Jesus will uh, interact with that altar in some way that is going to be significant to them in a very personal way. So you're, you're going to run into some roadblocks. You'll run into altars who are going to say, Jesus doesn't care about me. If he did, he wouldn't have let this abuse happen. You can say, look, 
Jesus does not ever <clears throat> violate the free will of individuals. Jesus cannot stop someone from, in <clears throat> from inflicting abuse and pain and torture on other people. He will not physically stop them. He doesn't have, that's, that's just how God is. God does not violate our free will ever. So you have to, you have to work with that reality. And many altars are going to be pissed off because they think God should have stepped in and stopped the abuse if you really care for them. What you say to them is, <clears throat> God, the Father, Jesus, whoever you want it, they're, they're comfortable with talking to, um, cannot stop someone from inflicting harm on another person because they would violate their free will. However, Jesus will show you that he never left your side, that he was with you the entire time. And if they say, prove it, or okay, ask Jesus to show them where he was during their abuse, and he will show them the scene from a perspective they've never seen before. And that perspective will change their perspective on the abuse and the trauma. And that may encourage them to trust Jesus. What you're trying to do is <clears throat> set up a dynamic where they are eventually going to trust Jesus enough that he will take away their pain and heal them. And he may integrate them back into the soul. He may take them into heaven. That's, that's up to the, it's ultimately up to the altar and Jesus to decide what they're going to do. As a facilitator of the healing process, your, your job is to make the introduction to Jesus, and then Jesus will take it from there. Um, you can sometimes ask questions to facilitate, but um, the decision-making should be between the altar and Jesus about when they're healed, whether they're healed, whether they're integrated, and how that works. Um, all right, I want to talk about a couple of types of altars that you're going to encounter that can help the process. There are some altars that are uh, controllers, and they're literally controllers, uh, not in the sense of political control. They're, they are controllers of systems. So when I talked about creating a blue system, what will happen is they'll, they'll take the core personality, split a, a new altar off of that core, and they have a core split. That core split is often going to be called a controller. The controller is sort of the master of a system. Then they're, they're traumatized and split, and that altar is traumatized and split, and that creates the system of altars. But that first one that was split off the core, that, that altar is usually called the controller. And the controller altar is sort of a gatekeeper. They have the ability to determine which altars come up and take over and which altars do not, uh, which altars do what functions. They're sort of like um, a, you know, a general. And, and in fact, in the programming, there is military programming that some survivors go through. And in military programming, they will give altars ranks, private, corporal, sergeant, you know, lieutenant, colonel, general. So, um, the controller altar in a system is you eventually are going to want to get a hold of a controller altar 
because the controller alter tend, they tend to be very, um, logical. They tend to be rather unemotional. They tend to be very factual and they have a good history of how the system was created. They know all the alters, their names, they know their functions, they know when the system was created, they know why the system was created. They'll, they'll have a lot of information they can give you to help you in the healing process. And now, <laughs> so I'm going to segue here in just a second. Uh, in each system of alters within a person's soul. So let's say they have a blue system, a red system, and a yellow system, right? And each system is responsible for different, a different set of tasks. Each of those systems is going to have an, a controller alter. And if you can make contact with that controller in that system, the controller will be able to tell you, again, how the system was formed, why the system was formed, what their functions are, and, and, and that's good information. You're going to be taking notes when you're doing this, by the way. Get a notepad, get a spiral, you know, uh, bound notebook and take notes. And you may actually help to draw out diagrams. Uh, it's, it's very common when you're doing this kind of emotional healing to write, to create a diagram of the system or a rough, you know, drawing of, okay, Here's a blue system. Here's a red system. Here's a yellow system. Here's a, here's the core. These are the controllers. Um, maybe inside of the system, there are buildings like pyramids and temples, things of that nature. You might just draw in a temple. Hey, here's a temple. Here's a pyramid. This is what it's used for. They do sacrifices here. Um, it's a really good idea to make notes as you're going through the healing process of what the system looks like. Are there booby traps? The controller alters will be able to tell you if there are booby traps and there, and most of these systems will have booby traps set up so that people like you will trigger suicide alters, uh, to be activated if certain things are done. So you have to be careful when you do this because you do not want to trigger suicide programming because then you've got a mess. Interviewing any of these con controller alters, they can generally help you understand how the systems are created. They can help you map out which alters are involved, which alters do what, where the booby traps are, where the temples are, all the other stuff. And you're just going to go, you have to go through this process and kind of, and look, <laughs> it, this is not a simple process. This is advanced emotional healing and it can take you years to get someone healed of all the trauma. If they've been a victim of uh, ritual abuse, it can take a very long time just to map out the system, understand how all the systems work, what their purposes are, where all the, you know, the booby traps are that need to be defused and avoided. Um, all right, different types of alters. Um, in addition to controller alters, there are usually in, inside a system, there are quite a few defenders or protectors. These are alters that are created and their, their primary job is to protect the individual from harm, right? And so when we talk about someone who is in a position where they feel like they're threatened and they suddenly get this Jekyll and Hyde behavior, like the easygoing person suddenly becomes 
you know, a Navy SEAL. <laughs> they want to break people's necks and lash out and be violent. And then once the threat is passed, they go back to being mild-mannered, easygoing person. Um, that Jekyll and Hyde behavior, that's usually a protector altar that's coming up, and their purpose is to protect the individual from harm. Um, protectors can be somewhat resistant to healing because they feel like it's their job to protect people. In the book, The Gates of Shiloh, if you remember, if you've read the book, and you remember the character Roxanne, <laughs> Roxanne is a protector for Shiloh. Badass, uh, you know, tough as nails, <clears throat> didn't want anything to do with this Jesus thing, wasn't interested in healing. The character Roxanne in that book is a good example of a protector altar. They're often resistant, but if you chip away at them, if you just show them love, show them compassion, joke around with them, get to get their trust. You need to build trust with them. Eventually, they will. Um, they, they might consent to being healed. One of the important things that you want to do in the healing process, when you have when you have an altar that comes up, and that altar has agreed to be healed by Jesus. It's good to use them as an evangelist for the rest of their system. Just ask that altar, say, hey, you know what? Uh, before you're healed, if you'd want to be integrated or whatever you're going to do with Jesus, would you like to go and tell the other altars in the system what you have learned about Jesus? Go tell the other altars, have conversations with them, and tell them, they can be free, their pain can end, they can be uh, set free of all this misery if they're, if they're willing to meet Jesus and let him heal them. That is a really good way to bring healing to the system. And uh, so, again, there's uh, this not, not an easy subject um, to dissect. I'm just I'm just trying to hit the, the high points. Uh, let's see. When when a when an altar agrees to be healed by Jesus, it's important to let the altar know that they're not going to cease to exist. They don't cease to exist. If if they decide they want to go to heaven with Jesus, they go to heaven with Jesus and they remain there as an altar, as a personality of their own in heaven, hanging out with the Lamb of God. And, you know, <laughs> everyone else is there in heaven. If they decide they want to be integrated, um, they don't cease to exist. They, they, they are uh, made one with the core personality. And it's just, it, it's an act of love. You can just tell, tell the altar, look, if you love Carol, the main personality, um, and you want her to be whole and you want what's best for her, you will agree to just be integrated with her. Jesus will take away your pain. He'll take away your suffering. He's going to carry on your job. He will do what you feel like you have to do. He'll take care of all your responsibilities. He'll take away your pain. He'll take away your suffering. You will become uh, integrated with Carol, and she'll become a more whole, complete person. That's what we're trying to get at. We're trying to get the individual, their core, to become whole again, to be reintegrated, so they can then live to the fullness 
of what God has purposed them to do. And that core personality cannot live out the fullness of God's destiny unless the altars and fragments are integrated and healed. That's kind of how it has to happen. I want to say one more thing about the healing process. If you're going to be successful in this endeavor, you're going to have to do a lot of discipleship because there are demons involved in this whole process. A lot of the altars are tormented by demons. The rituals that these cults do, the rituals summon demons to facilitate the trauma, to seal their instructions. So there's a lot of demonization that goes on. And in addition to healing and integrating the altars, you need to, you're going to be doing some deliverance and getting rid of demons. That's another part of the process. It's necessary to do a lot of discipleship because in everything that we do, especially in everything we do related to healing, we're making disciples. That's what Jesus said we needed to do. We needed to go out and make disciples of all nations. And altars have been lied to. They've been mentally programmed. They've been deceived and they've been demonized. They've been lied to about who Jesus is. In some systems, there are demons running around pretending to be Jesus. And these demons will tell the altars they are Jesus. They'll tell the altars they are God the Father. And then they'll abuse and torment these, these altars so that the altars have a false view of God. And what we need to do is show them the real Jesus, the real God the Father. And sometimes that requires us to get rid of these you know, fake uh, Jesus uh, demons. Some altars will pretend to be Jesus. Um, if you run into an altar that says they met this evil Jesus who is hateful and ugly, ask him to describe the Jesus. And you're, you'll be surprised at the description. It's not going to be the real Jesus. And you just need to then give them some understanding of what Jesus is really like, who he really is. And if you need some help, that book, <laughs> The Gates of Shiloh, in The Gates of Shiloh, um, that novel, I try to portray Jesus in the best light possible, in, in a realistic way that how Jesus is to me, uh, a loving, kind, nurturing um, man who has a sense of humor who uh, understands our weaknesses, understands our pain, but also sees our destiny and is primarily interested in us succeeding and living the fullness of what he has destined for us. So we need to help these altars see who the real Jesus is, and that takes discipleship. Um, it, it, you may have to call the altar up, you know, a couple times a week, have a little chat with them, ask them how they're doing, ask them, you know, hey, can I tell you more about Jesus? Do you have any questions? Anything I can help you with? You may just over a period of, you know, weeks, develop discussions with this altar. You know, when you have, when you meet with a person, call the altar up and see if you can <clears throat> give them some instruction and some encouragement, show them some love. And as that process goes forward, as you gain trust with that with that altar, eventually they're going to let you um, introduce them to Jesus and get them healed. And that's that's the goal uh, of all this. All right. Well, <laughs> I've been talking for a while. 
and I'm starting to lose my voice. That is going to be a wrap on this uh, message. Uh, if you have questions, comments, disagreements, uh, need further explanation, yes, you can email me. <laughs> I have a lot of emails uh, after yesterday's uh, live stream on Elijah, Elijah Streams. But send me your email. Send me your, your, your story. Um, <laughs> some of these stories are long. It takes me a long time to read them and process them and understand what's going on. But send me your story. Send me your questions. I'll do whatever I can to elaborate. Um, let me say this. If you are looking for one-on-one -on -one ministry, there are, there are not a lot of places that do one-on-one -on -one ministry for survivors of uh, trauma-based mind control. I can recommend Freedom Encounters. Freedom Encounters has a really good program with emotional healing and deliverance. Uh, I know a lot of people who have been through their, their program and it works pretty well. I don't know how well it works for uh, high level, you know, trauma, trauma-based mind control with, with multiple personalities and DID. I, I don't know if they're equipped to do that. They are equipped to do some pretty heavy-duty emotional healing and deliverance. So if you're looking for one-on-one, -on -one, they do ministry over Zoom. So just go on the internet and put in your favorite search engine, uh, Freedom Encounters, and you can come up with their website, and they have a contact page. You can learn about their resources and their process. I do recommend them as a resource for one-on-one. -on -one. I do not do one-on-one. -on -one ministry for healing and prayer. I just don't have the time and, and availability to do it. Um, my job is writing books and teaching. Um, I really don't do a lot of one-on-one -on -one prayer ministry. That's not my calling. Uh, there are people who are called to do that, and, and I love them, and I bless them. Uh, they love to do one-on-one -on -one healing prayer. They'll do it 40 hours a week, you know, 50 weeks a year. I, I don't have the ability to do that. Um, I can give you suggestions, advice, resources, answer some questions. But, you know, if you want to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with me to do healing ministry, I, I don't have the ability to offer that service. So I just wanted to put that out there. All right. I'm going to close this live stream. Thank you for joining. Uh, I love and appreciate your prayer and support. Uh, Denise and I really do need your prayers. The country needs your prayers. Uh, and, uh, I have another book that's <laughs> in the works. It'll be coming out soon on emergency preparedness and communication. You'll be hearing about it in the coming weeks. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Again, we do live streams on Telegram second Saturday of the month, uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern. Join the live stream or you can catch it, the replay on Rumble on my website, prayingmedic.com or prayingmedic.org. Love you all. Take care. I will catch you on the next broadcast.